This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The grave danger the U.S. president sees is an anti-conservative bias on social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook. And it's why today's executive order is aimed at making them liable for how they regulate content and what users post. What they choose to fact-check and what they choose to ignore or even promote is nothing more than a political activism group or political activism. Trump is frustrated with Twitter in particular after the platform slapped a fact-check this week on his misleading tweets about voter fraud. And that's why he wants these tech giants to face the same scrutiny as traditional publishers. The U.S. approach to Internet platform liability has been characterized as the single most important legal protection for free speech on the Internet. Over the past two decades, every major Internet service, notably including Google, Amazon, Facebook and Twitter, has turned to the rules to ensure that liability for third-party content posted on their sites rests with the poster, not the site or service. Those rules have proven increasingly controversial, however with mounting calls for the companies to take on greater responsibility for content posted on their sites. The issue captured international attention last month when U.S. President Donald Trump issued an executive order that heightens the pressure for change. Eric Goldman is a professor of law at Santa Clara University School of Law in the Silicon Valley, where he co-directs the High Tech Law Institute. He has written extensively about Internet liability and appeared before the U.S. Congress to testify on the issue. He joins me on the podcast to discuss the history behind the U.S. approach, its impact, and the implications of the Trump executive order. Eric, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really happy to have you here. You know, for the last several months since the since we faced the public health crisis, I've always started by asking how people are doing grappling uh, and dealing with this issue. Uh, as we record this, though, on, on Thursday, June 4th, we're dealing both with the public health crisis, but of course, the wor- world's attention is focused on the murder of George Floyd, the importance of Black Lives Matter, and the fight for racial justice, and wanted to open by giving you a chance to, to share any thoughts you might have at, at this rather remarkable and really challenging moment. Yeah, it's a difficult time for our country, and I think for the rest of the world too, but particularly here in our country, we're seeing the interplay between a a series of problems um, that have really come to a head. Certainly the racial tensions in our country have been exposed in a a poignant and uh, an outrageous way. Um, And so everyone in in our community is figuring out how can we fight back on behalf of the underprivileged and uh, discriminated uh, communities in our community. Or in our country. Um, we're also seeing the government and the police respond with heavy-handed tactics against those who are protesting and trying to express themselves. And so we have a, a governance issue in our country as well um, that is deeply intertwined with the uh, struggle for racial justice. So um, we have a lot of battles to fight. We have to fight the racial justice battle and we have to fight against the authoritarian tendencies of our country. And we have to do it all at once while we're under a lockdown uh, due to a major public health crisis. So, um, you know, 2020 is an incredibly difficult year. It's uh, been a struggle for all of us. 
Yeah, no, I think I think that's true. No matter who you talk to, and certainly Canadians looking at what's taking place in the United States, uh, we've got many of our own challenges, and and the fight for racial justice is incredibly important here as well. And uh, there's no doubt there are real issues in Canada, like there are in so many places. But the governance challenges in the United States are, are really something to behold, and so deeply troubling. I think to the to the entire world. Uh, now, over the last number of, of days, it seems like almost every day feels like a bit like a month. Uh, but it was only a week ago as we record this that uh, Twitter sort of sparked new discussion around the role of platform liability as they fact-checked a Donald Trump tweet, which then sparked the executive order that we're going to spend some time talking about. In the days since, this issue has continued to percolate, of course, Twitter issuing a warning on uh, on a follow-up tweet related to Minneapolis from Trump. Uh, Snapchat has stopped promoting Trump's tweets, and Facebook has faced enormous amount of criticism, both from outside and uh, reportedly inside as well, for the position that they've been taking. So this is an incredibly timely issue and one that's tied to many of the things that are taking place today. Before we get, though, to the, the Trump executive order and, and what it all means, I thought we should start with the Communications Decency Act CDA Section 230 and the U.S. approach to platform liability. Can you walk us through a little bit uh, what the state of the law currently is in the United States? Yeah, I'm happy to do it. And uh, it does differ from um, uh, virtually every other country. So um, many people not in the United States uh, may find it even more baffling than we find it here in the United States. So uh, let's start with some basics. In 1996, uh, Congress enacted a law uh, 47 U.S.C. 230, or Section 230, that says, and I'm going to summarize, uh, websites aren't liable for third-party content. It's a really simple and elegant principle, but it's counterintuitive to a lot of people. They always want to say, but what if, or how about, or why would that be different than other offline media? Um, there's lots of questions that that principle uh, sparks, but the simple principle has stood true for a quarter century. Websites aren't liable for third-party content. Now, there are several statutory exceptions. The two that are most relevant to our conversation um, are, one, there's an exception for intellectual property claims, and those are governed by other rules like the DMCA's online uh, safe harbor or the notice and takedown rule here in the U.S. There's also an exception for federal criminal prosecutions. So if our uh, federal Department of Justice initiates a criminal enforcement action, Section 230 becomes irrelevant. But in all other material respects, Section 230 says websites aren't liable for third-party content, and that's been the legal principle for a quarter century. Okay. You, know, you mentioned that the, the U.S. is a bit of an outlier, or at least is, is at one end of the spectrum in terms of some of its approaches. What's the historical background in the United States that led it to adopt this kind of provision? Uh, there were a couple of cases uh, addressing when services could be liable for third-party or user-generated content in the early, mid-1990s in the United States. Um, one uh, legal holding suggested that uh, Internet services wouldn't be liable for third-party content unless they knew or should have known about the uh, problematic content. Um, and that principle encouraged Internet companies to put their head in the sand um, to say, well, if I don't know and I shouldn't have known, then I wouldn't be liable for it. Um, that was followed up with another ruling that said that internet companies uh, could be liable for third-party content if they advertise themselves as having a family-friendly service and that if, if they'd actually 
uh, exercise editorial discretion to remove posts. The basic legal principle was if you try, you need to get it right. And if you fail, um, then you're going to be liable for what you miss. And so that created even more incentive for internet companies to put their head in the sand and say, we're not going to do anything. We're going to uh, stay as far away from exercising control over our database as possible. But that wasn't what Congress wanted. Congress wanted, at the time, internet companies to do more to crack down particularly on uh, pornographic material that was available to minors. So as part of a larger law, the Communications Decency Act, Congress enacted this specific provision, Section 230, to try to encourage internet companies to do the policing work that the prior case law had um, uh, suggested that they should avoid, to give them some incentives to actually um, uh, protect against bad content or unwanted content. Um, uh, and so Section 230 says, you're not liable for third-party content, even if you try and fail, or even if you knew or should have known, uh, Section 230 overrode the bad uh, dynamics of the prior two cases. Okay, that's really interesting. So the the initial vision of Congress wasn't so much, what, what was in addition to this broad notion of uh, of, of a safe harbor from liability, not for their own speech, not for the platform's own speech, but rather for the third-party speech that got posted there, that they hoped that this kind of safe harbor would result in some of these companies taking a more active role uh, in taking action, knowing that they would not face liability if they attempted to do so? Yeah, exactly right. The idea was that uh, under the prior rules, there were really two dominant outcomes. Either an internet company exercise complete editorial control over its uh, user content um, and accepted liability for whatever it missed, or it tried to do as little as possible and hoped that it would not be liable because it didn't know or hadn't uh, marketed itself or because it hadn't taken that first step that became a permanent election towards uh, editorial control. Um, so the Section 230 created a, a zone of um, options in the middle between those two endpoints. It said, you can try and really crack down on content, and you're not going to be liable for what you miss. Or you cannot try and put your head in the sand, and you're not liable for the fact that you, you chose to let users have their say. Or anywhere in between, all of them get the same legal outcome, the services aren't liable for third-party content. But most importantly, for Congress's goal, it was like a self-regulatory initiative. It was to say, why don't we give you the freedom to try to do your best, and we're not going to hold you accountable for the fact that you're not going to do it perfectly. We get that. You should have the freedom to fail as long as you, as, uh, and still we want you to try. Okay. So as you mentioned, this law is now uh, about a quarter century old. How would you describe the impact that it's had? Section 230 is the foundation of the modern internet. Really, when we think about what we do uh, on the internet on a, on a daily, hourly, even minute-by-minute minute basis, uh, Section 230 is the reason why those services that we use and enjoy so frequently are in existence today. Um, and so think about all the things that we take advantage of. We get uh, email services and we get um, social media services. We get a free um, uh, uh, online encyclopedia. Uh, we get uh, access to uh, marketplaces where third parties are trying to uh, uh, sell uh, us uh, items that we might be interested in. All of those are powered at their core by uh, Section 230. And so it's really become the the reason why the internet works the way it does today. 
That's interesting. I'm assuming that there's been considerable litigation uh, over this provision in the intervening years. Some, pres- some presumably not happy with with a statute that that gives the kind of freedom that you just described to to large internet platforms. Uh, how have the courts addressed these issues? So uh, in the Lexis database, uh, they have a tool for checking citations uh, called Shepherds. And there's over 900 uh, Shepherd citations for Section 230 in the the Lexis database. And I can explain if you want why that number is incomplete. There are almost certainly more cases than that. Um, So it is a a, a provision that has has been the subject of substantial litigation. in general, the courts have really held the line on the idea that websites aren't liable for third-party content. That basic principle has been um, uh, 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 the dominant outcome in cases consistently over the last 25 years. So the courts, I think, have really grasped that basic concept and applied it pretty well. Now, there are statutory exceptions, and we have uh, boundary issues about the, the scope of those statutory exceptions. There have been some common law exceptions that have developed. Um, and sometimes we see cases that, where judges just say, I don't like that rule. That rule can't be right. I'm going to do something goofy. Um, so not all judges have embraced it. But, but by far, the, the vast majority of those cases have done really have really executed on the idea that websites aren't liable for third-party content. Okay, so the courts have held the line. What about Congress? You know, as, as, as I'm sure you're aware, and many listeners will be aware, there have been mounting calls around the world, really, for the internet platforms to take on greater responsibility for the content that's posted on their sites. Have we seen attempts to reform the law to say that uh, Congress didn't get the balance right when it struck the provisions that it did back in the 1990s? Yeah, Congress didn't really touch Section 230 in a material way for quite some time. Um, there were a few minor amendments over the first uh, 15 years or so. Um, and uh, then in uh, uh, about a decade ago, Congress actually doubled down on Section 230 and said that not only do we want Section 230 to be the law domestically, but we want to prevent people from running to foreign courts, getting judgments that would have contravened Section 230 and bringing them back into the U.S., So for the first 15 plus years, Congress was pretty much thumbs up across the board on uh, Section 230. Uh, The last five years uh, have seen growing pressure in Congress to uh, challenge the law. Um, And Congress did enact a major structural carveback in the law uh, in 2018 in a law called FOSTA. Um, And that was the first time that Congress had really circumscribed or clipped the wings of the law um, over its lifespan. Uh, And there are several pending laws in Congress today uh, to further uh, clip the wings of Section 230. It's not clear to me which of any of those are going to be successful, um, but the fact that there are multiple pending uh, laws targeting Section 230 is a pretty good indicator of uh, where Congress's heads at. It is. No, that, that's a that's a really helpful background. And for those that didn't know what Section 230 is, and all they've seen is the occasional Trump tweet, where sometimes now it seems that he'd simply tweet Section 230. It's good to have that background information. Why don't we move into to the position that we get coming out of the executive order? Now, the president's obviously been very active on social media. Is it simply this attempt by Twitter to put a fact check link on a tweet that that it, that sparked his interest or do you feel that there's something bigger going on 
So let's be clear, President Trump is a huge enthusiast of social media. Um, his Twitter account is his primary external identity, and he drives tremendous pride and emotional investment from the fact that he has the ability to reach an audience unfiltered without um, uh, having to navigate through traditional media. Um, in addition, his campaign loves to do online advertising in social media. Um, and has spent tens of millions of dollars, uh, both in the 2016 presidential elections, as well as uh, running up to the 2020 uh, presidential elections, uh, advertising on social media. Um, so when you look at how uh, Trump and his campaign view social media, they love it and they have embraced it fully. Having said that, there's become um, a, a new line of criticism in Section 230 uh, among what we're going to call, quote, conservatives. And I have to put that term in quote because the term conservative doesn't mean what it used to mean here in the U.S. Uh, back in the days of uh, uh, President Reagan, for example, uh, there was a certain meaning for the term conservative that no longer applies to the current conservatives. Um, so the current conservatives um, view uh, Section 230 as, uh, uh, as part of a general... Um, uh, legal and, and social environment that suppresses their voices. They feel like the social media companies are discriminating against conservative voices and that Section 230 is the reason why they're free to do so. So Trump himself loves uh, social media, but the people who he's trying to uh, impress and keep happy um, have continually, routinely criticized Section 230. So it's not at all surprising that Trump would take up that charge um, this is another way for him to tell his supporters, I hear you and I care about the issues that matter to you. Um, so in addition to uh, um, reflecting the, uh, this, this general conservative trend, pushing back against the internet companies and their, per their perceived discrimination against conservative voices, um, Trump was, uh, was emotionally outraged when Twitter fact-checked him. And you can understand why. Because he values so highly the ability to communicate without any interference to tens of millions of people, the fact that Twitter then interposed itself and says, we're going to add something to that conversation taking place between Trump and his listeners, um, that was exactly what Trump didn't want in the first place. He just wants to be able to say his thing without anyone without anyone uh, clipping his wings. So in fact, he was emotionally outraged by Twitter's intervention in that conversation he was having. So the two combined together to produce the executive order. Okay. Now that executive order, you've, you've done a really detailed post that examined uh, every aspect of it, and you've described it as pro-censorship political theater. Now, what did you mean by that? Well, first, the executive order is principally political theater, that it not, it's not a serious attempt to reform the law. Um, I don't really think that Trump cares if the law changes or not. That's not really the goal and it never has been. So, so like so much of the work that politicians do, um, they wanna create perceptions of things. They don't really care if the truth actually backs it up. Um, but that's really Trump's modus operandi in every facet of his life. He's always been far more concerned about the perceptions than actually doing good things. Um, so that's why it's political theater, because it doesn't really do very much, but it never was intended to do so. 
Um, and it's pro-censorship because at its core, the, the animating goal of the executive order is to prevent internet companies from exercising their editorial discretion, is to tell them that as publishers, they can't decide what's fit for their audience. They can only um, uh, exercise that in limited discretion, in limited ways, and anything else the executive order tries to make it so that that would be a, a, a legal violation or would be outside the scope of Section 230. So it's pro-censorship in a very deep way. It's trying to tell internet companies they might be required to carry content that they don't think is fit for their audience. Okay, so that suggests that they take a, a hands-off approach, but you mentioned some of the conservative talking points that we've seen where we often say they are interfering too much. So that's consistent with that. Is there a concern that, that as we have in other countries where there is greater liability on board, Canada is one of those countries where, at least until we get this trade agreement that we'll talk about in a couple of minutes, uh, there is the prospect of liability, that there is a greater likelihood actually of taking down content for fear of facing potential liability. So without the safe harbor protections that come out of this legislation, there's a likelihood in many instances where people are made, companies are made aware of uh, potential content that raises issues that they may simply remove it so that they don't want to face any of the potential legal repercussions. Yeah, and uh, sometimes we'll call that the heckler's veto. Um, the idea that um, content is easy to scrub if any one person in the audience objects to it. Um, because that one person repre represents a particular uh, 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 a, a legal threat, uh, the potential legal threat that they're going to uh, invoke the law to protect their interests. And so when a single person can say, I want that content removed and be able to do so, uh, lots of content gets taken down and scrubbed. Um, so uh, the problem that we have here in the U.S. and navigating the discussion is that Section 230 sits on top of our constitutional protections for free speech that are codified in the First Amendment. Um, and that constitutional um, uh, protections for free speech um, are not changeable by Congress or the president. Those would be require a very complicated involved process to change, happens very, very frequently in our country. Um, so the heckler's veto is actually the kind of thing that might very well be not permitted under the First Amendment, irrespective of whether or not Section 230 applies. So we could have a situation where Section 230 doesn't apply, um, even because, let's say, we eliminate it. Um, so websites, in theory, could be liable for uh, third-party content. And then we would have to look and say, well, does the First Amendment permit that kind of liability? Um, and so one of the many reasons why the executive order is political theater, because even if it succeeded in its goal of taking away Section 230, the First Amendment probably prevents most of the objectives from being achieved. That's interesting. If, if it's largely theater, does it accomplish anything at all? Would it result in any sort of changes or lead us to the possibility of some changes? Well, again, that never really was the goal. Um, so let's talk about how the executive order has already succeeded. Um, and this is the part that um, uh, that uh, that you know, it, it, you're like this is a long-term, multi-year battle, right? We're fighting for the soul of Section 230, which is the soul of the internet. But President Trump has already achieved what I think is likely all of his goals. Um, he already got that on day one. Um, so the goals were, I think, threefold. One was to um, what, do what we call here in the United States, working the ref. And you probably have something similar uh, in uh, Canada. I'm not sure exactly what the terminology might be. We're a hockey, we're a, we're a hockey country. We definitely have that term. 
Yeah. So as you can imagine, there are things that are in a gray area and the rules of hockey and uh, hockey players, my jawbone at the refs to get them to be a little more favorable or tolerant or uh, their uh, behavior or a little less tolerant of their opponent's behavior. Um, and that's, that's a very common thing here in the United States, this concept of working the ref. Um, so one of the goals of the executive order was to work the ref, to tell other internet companies and Twitter that uh, President Trump is going to blow back if they try to intervene again. Um, it's a warning shot across the bow of the internet companies. If you continue to suppress my voice or the voice of the people that I respect, I will marshal the tools of the most powerful government that ever has existed against you. Um, and so even those tools never get evoked, that kind of moral pressure or threat of intervention in the future um, can easily chill um, uh, the internet company's behavior without any change in the law. And I'll point out in particular um, that Trump uh, in his uh, signing ceremony and the executive order uh, in the express language and conservative media in covering the uh, Twitter interventions called out one particular guy at Twitter and said, this is the guy who's responsible for clipping Trump's wings and let's go look at his social media. This guy is a flaming liberal. So he's had it in for us since the beginning. And that pressure directed that one guy um, is the kind of thing that uh, has led to death threats and to upending that person's life. So everyone else in the industry took note of that and says, I don't want to be the one that, that President Trump, with the, the megaphone of his presidency, calls out as a problem, because um, that will change my life for the worse. Um, so the working the ref is both at a corporate level and at an individual employee level. The executive order has already done both. The second thing that the executive order uh, was designed to do was to play to Trump's base, to let his voters know that he is fighting for them against the powers that he thinks are trying to suppress them. And, oh, by the way, if they want to send some campaign donations, he wouldn't turn them down. Um, so, uh, and then the third objective was for Trump to try and dominate the headlines, to shift the media's agenda away from other failings, like the fact that his COVID, his administration's COVID-19 policy has led to the avoidable deaths of tens of thousands of Americans. The media is all ready to cover that story. Um, and Trump was able to get them off that story and onto the story that he wanted them to cover. And that happened when he did the executive order. It dominated the headlines and drove down uh, coverage of other failings in his administration. So he worked the refs, he played to his base, and he reframed the media's agenda. And all that happened on day one, he's already won. Okay. Now, days after that day one, there was a legal challenge that was launched against the executive order by CDT. Uh, any thoughts on the chances for success uh, on the order, although I recognize you've already said that uh, it's, it's, it's succeeded and it hasn't succeeded based on legal reform, but rather on for the reasons that you just articulated. Uh, so uh, I've seen the CDT lawsuit. Um, I have worked with CDT on various Section 2 related issues. They do fabulous work. I'm nervous that this lawsuit isn't going to accomplish its goals. There are some questions about whether or not CDT has the appropriate legal basis to be the one to object to the order. And then there's a second order problem that if the order doesn't really do anything, it's kind of hard to complain about how it might hurt CDT or anyone else. 
Um, so I am worried that the courts are going to reject it, not on its merits, but on the fact that CDT is not the right person to bring the objection or that CDT and no one else that CDT could speak for has really been harmed because the order hasn't done very much yet. Hmm. It's interesting that that it's more on those on the those procedural issues where it might fall. Now, the same kinds of provisions that we've been talking about can be found in the USMCA, the the trade deal between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Uh, it seemingly shifts the law in both Canada and Mexico. We don't have those same provisions, and now, while we may not adopt precisely the same provision, this presumably precludes Canada from creating new levels of liability for platforms, uh, contrary to what's found under Section 230. What it also seemingly does is lock the U.S. into its system. Um, Any thoughts on, on the one hand, the kind of opposition that you were talking about earlier in Congress, uh, with at the same time the inclusion of these kinds of provisions within its most recent trade agreement? Yeah, the USMCA is a really interesting uh, development because it was the one bright spot in the Section 230 um, uh, community um, uh, in light of just a series of bad uh, uh, developments elsewhere. Um, In other words, um, we just see Congress uh, looking for ways to chip away at Section 230, and then we get this full-throated embrace of Section 230 in this international uh, treaty. Um, it was it was just out of sync with how the conversations were going here in the U.S. I was that I think it's a fabulous idea, and I would think that honestly can, Canadians would benefit from having Section 230 on the books. Um, but I don't think that's likely to occur. And so the question is, um, how are uh, the uh, how are Canada and Mexico going to read the provisions embracing Section 230? Are they going to try and find some way to gesture at the legal requirement by stitching together a bunch of disparate data points and saying, yeah, we kind of do what this says, so we're in compliance. Um, another possibility is that no one will ever try and comply to any, uh, never bring any enforcement um, efforts to try and enforce compliance. Um, I don't really know what the future holds or who's going to be trying to push on those issues and what their agendas will be. Um, Canada, in my opinion, uh, it does not uh, have an existing legal framework that is consistent with Section 230. Uh, there's a number of cases in Canada that would have come out a different way in the United States. Um, so, uh, but I don't think Canada's planning to adopt anything like Section 230. So I think we're either going to see Canada out of compliance or we're going to assume that no one plans to enforce it. Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, I don't, I don't foresee Canada putting forward a piece of legislation that includes 230, but it may at least cause officials to think twice before they introduce legislation that would clearly run contrary to the provisions they've just agreed to in the USMCA that are similar to uh, Section 230. I would just note, uh, the U.S. will have no such uh, hesitation. So Congress will absolutely blast forward with efforts to tinker with Section 230. Um, even if that would also contravene the USMCA. So it's a it's a really fascinating provision because I don't really know who plans to abide by it. Um, and if no one plans to abide by it, I don't really understand what the point was. Uh, in part, it's typically to just simply say this is a standard and seek to export it, even if the enforcement side uh, is does ceases to have much impact. That's certainly what we've seen from the inclusion of certain copyright provisions and trade deals over the years. Um, you've already started us down toward my 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 last question to close us out, which is a bit of a look ahead. Uh, you talked about the 
the lack of implications from the USMCA, but more broadly, what, what next do, do you foresee for uh, both the executive order and perhaps more broadly for, for Section 230 at a time when I know that it's not just Trump that's spoken about it, but we've had the, the Democratic uh, candidate, Joe Biden, talk about some of those same provisions and express some, some concerns about them as well. So the executive order asks uh, three independent agencies in the United States to do stuff to try and undermine Section 230. Um, And so the decisions of those independent agencies, whether or not to do what the executive order asks, will tell us if there's even going to be a further fight on this. They could simply say no to the request. Um, I believe they would have the legal grounds to do so. And if that's the case, then... um, uh, then the executive order won't actually have any legal bite because nobody's actually doing the work that it tried to uh, initiate. Um, if those agencies do pick up the, the challenge laid to them by the EO, then uh, we will have fights. Um, and those fights uh, will probably spill over into court. Um, and so this will be a multi-year battle that will rage um, not only over Section 230, but also uh, over the First Amendment limits on government censorship. Um, so there's there's plenty of, of litigation fun on that front um, in our future if the agencies push a board. It's possible they won't, in which case, uh, if we get a new administration, um, that administration won't be pushing more or might re- push a different way. And so then this becomes kind of an artifact of the Trump era. Um, uh, both uh, President Trump and his Democratic challenger, Joe Biden, have each independently said in, in very plain words that they want to revoke Section 230. Trump literally tweeted that and nothing more, revoke 230 exclamation mark. And uh, uh, Biden, um, a few months ago, in an interview said Section 230 should be revoked immediately. Um, So it is guaranteed that uh, the president who will be in office come January 2021 will have been on the record saying that, that they want Section 230 gone. But as we've seen from the executive order, the president can't necessarily guarantee that outcome. That that question over Section 230 ultimately falls on Congress. Will Congress want to amend Section 230? And the challenge there um, is uh, that on the one hand, there's bipartisan support for changing Section 230. Both Democrats and Republicans have made that clear, that they both think that Section 230 should change. Um, However, they don't agree on why it should change and therefore how it should change. So there's this small glimmer of hope that though there's bipartisan consensus targeting Section 230, that the parties still can't agree on how to change it, and that will paralyze Congress. Um, I know that Congress gets a lot of grief for being um, a, a gridlocked entity, but here, in my view, being a Section 230 uh, uh, enthusiast, um, gridlock is our is, is our uh, is a, a favorable outcome for uh, this question from my perspective. So the question will be whether or not Congress can in, find a way to embrace its bipartisan opposition to Section 230 and come up with a deal that everyone loves, um, or if they can all talk about how they hate it but can't agree on what to do about it. In which case, it might last a little longer. Okay. An issue that's that's clearly going to capture a lot of political attention, policy attention, and I think the public's attention um, in the months and potentially even years to come. Eric, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. 
If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to LawBites at PO.box.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.